Welcome to Unraveling Midlife. I'm your host, Sarah Spence. Thanks for joining me as I explore my own midlife by speaking with inspiring people about theirs. The definition of midlife I'm using relates to Western astrology transits that run from the mid-30s to the mid-40s for everyone. These have an overall theme, though details vary by generation and also by person. I'm right in the middle of the four main midlife transits and learning lots along the way, especially from my guests on the show. Today's episode features Swami Lalitananda from Yashodra Ashram in Canada, a place dear to my heart. Yashodra Ashram was started by Swami Shivananda Radha, the first Western woman initiated into sannyas, renunciation, who Swami Lalitananda worked with as her assistant before eventually stepping into leading the ashram. She sees her role as helping to draw out people's strengths, which is definitely what the ashram is all about. It played a huge part in my own life, especially in my mid-twenties, when I spent both short periods and then a year living there, learning about myself in ways I never could have imagined. Swami Lalitananda tells us her story, and we can match it up with the astrological transits when she found the ashram during her Saturn return, and spent much time with Swami Radha in her midlife, then went on to write about it. She is the author of two books, Glimpses of a Mystical Affair and The Inner Life of Asanas. I love her writing, as it's beautifully delicate and reflectively illustrative, just like her speech. Namaste Swami Lalita Nanda, and thanks so much for joining us on Unraveling Midlife. Namaste. Really honoured to have you join us, um, having played such an important part with Yashodra Ashram um, in my journey, including I spent some time there during my own, part of my own midlife at the beginning, during my Pluto Square transition, um, <laughs> which was fun. And uh, and I sent you through some dates of, of your midlife and you said, oh, oh, I'm going to have to look back. What was happening then? Yeah, so tell us a little bit about you and what you do. Okay. Well, I live at Yashodara Ashram, which is in British Columbia, Canada. And I'd like to acknowledge, first of all, the, the land on which we are, which is um, the territory of the Sinaiaks and the Tanaha people. Um, yeah, I recently met with um, one of the Sinaiaks um, women um, she just left yesterday. So it's really wonderful that we're making the connections to the um, first people of the land. I'm really happy about that. So we are located in a, in a really beautiful location in the mountains with a really large lake. And um, it's a small community. So ashram actually, how we translate it, that I think is understandable for people who don't really know what an ashram is is we translate it as spiritual home. And it, it, this ashram in particular, although it started by a particular person, Swami Shivananda Radha, um, who was a woman who studied in India in the 1950s with Swami Shivananda of Rishikesh, and then came back to Canada and started this ashram. So even though it's a particular lineage, which an ashram usually is a particular lineage, we're very open to people from all traditions. And so um, we have a temple here that's a beautiful um, 
eight-sided building with eight doors that go into it. And each door represents a way in to the light at the center. And I feel like that's pretty representative of the openness that we have to different traditions. Um, so we, we honor the First Nations here. We honor Buddhism, Christianity. At this point, we're, we're right at Christmas. And this evening, we're having a Christmas pageant put on by a number of young people, very excited to, <laughs> to show their talents and, and have fun. Um, yeah. So I am called the president of the ashram. I have been the president since 2014, so seven years. And basically, we're, we're a team leadership place because we have a number of people who were initiated by Swami Radha, who have been with the teachings for 20 to 30 years. And each person has a particular talent. And it feels like part of my role is just drawing out the talents of, of the people who are here. And then there's so many um, young people coming in because we're all more like 60 to over 70 now. And so we're inviting in and always have invited in next generations of people. And they are able to take on leadership as well in ways that we no longer can. So they're leading the garden. They're, they're doing a lot of the physical work, but also like the video work and, and the communications and IT, all of those kinds of things. Um, so we're, we're very layered. And with COVID in the past two years, we've, we've also um, extended to online. So that, that is something that, oh, we always thought we would like to do, but really didn't have the time because we were so busy with our, our people coming in and taking care of them, coming for courses, staying, cleaning their rooms, handing the garden, all the things that you have to do in a community. So with COVID, when everything shut down, we immediately learned how to do online. And that's another layer of our, um, of our programming now, which feels really good because people can come here without traveling long distances. For example, from New Zealand, you can <laughs> tune in, <laughs> take a course and, uh, and meet us online. Yes, working out the time difference is always the key. Correct, <laughs> especially That's if it true. rolls over a daylight savings change. <laughs> yes, and a day a day different. I think you're on Christmas yes. Eve, and we're the day before Christmas Eve right now. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. And so, how did you become involved in the ashram? Was that around the time of your midlife? Um, I actually, my first one was, I forget what you call it, but around 28, actually. So oh, that yeah, was that, the that first entry. The Saturn yeah. return where yeah. there's often a shift of life. Like people often get married or have a child or get divorced mm -hmm. or, or something happens to shift the, the viewpoint from young adult to adult. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it, I, when I was younger, when I was a teenager, I had this sort of questing feeling of like, there has to be something more. And, and it was yoga that I turned to for whatever reason. So it, it's like my path is what I see as I look back because that was pretty early. And I just got out books and studied on my own and did practice, path of practice. 
but read about breathing and all this, the philosophy. And I was very interested in it. But when I was 28, a lot of things happened. And, and I, I'd been very experimental in my lifestyle during my early 20s and a bit on the wild side and kind of not finishing school and things like that. Just traveling and getting my experiences. And, um, and then things sort of crashed down a bit and I, I needed something else. And that's when I discovered the ashram, the Shudra ashram. And, um, yeah, and I, I, it, I really liked the teachings because, um, because they questioned, they asked me questions. And, and they were questions that I've never asked myself before. Like, what is mind? And what is consciousness? And who are you? <laughs> and what do you want to do with your life? So it, it it led me to to thinking and to choice and to understanding that I had choice and kind of set me off in a direction. So that's when it started. And then for me, it kept going, not like in a straight line, but yeah. Yeah, so at one point, once I kind of enjoyed the teachings that I was receiving at the ashram, actually through Swami Radha, because she used to travel a lot. And at the time I lived in Alberta and she would come out and do workshops there. So we had a lot of um, interaction. I had a lot of interaction with her personally. And um, she was a very dynamic teacher and extremely intuitive in the teaching and very challenging to the ego part of me. <laughs> so, um, so that was a, I was outside the ashram, but I was getting this connection and, and this working on myself part. And then I came and did the yoga development course um, in 1982 when I was 30. And after that, I, it was a real life changer for me because of the depth of the work that we do in that three months. And I, I left feeling with a lot of confidence and, and, a, and a foundation and a, and a feeling that I needed to finish off what I hadn't done in my 20s. And so that period was um, all about completing my education, finishing my bachelor's degree, um, going on to a master's degree, and then going out to work for a couple of years. So that by the time I, I came back to the ashram, because that was still my purpose, I wanted to live here. To her, I wanted to learn from her. Um, that was my secret desire. And um, so, so it was like part of this was my apprenticeship in the world. And then I came back and, uh, and she kind of sent me off to one of these Rada houses. And actually, I really kind of wanted to be at the ashram or be with her, but I had to go to this other place. And one of the, um, one of the changes that you described in the midlife was kind of the biggest fear. And, and I felt like I, when I went back and looked at my diaries from the time, I feel like I really hit that because I'd done all this work. I felt confident. I felt like I knew how to live in the world. I had my education. I had my yoga background. And then I was placed in this household position where I said I kind of felt like a yogic housewife, like I was doing the menial work and and there's this other woman who was running the place and this other guy there that I didn't really get along with. And I felt like closed in and my emotions just were rising up. <laughs> so it was challenging to see, oh, there's still a lot of work to do here. 
but in my in in the um, in the areas of change that you pointed out, the Pluto square, the Uranus opposition, the Neptune, they all kind of happened at the same time, and I, I feel like that that was the case with me when I looked back, because also then Swami Radha came to live at this house where I was, so I got my secret desire to be with her and to serve her, and um, and then she. Um, the person who was her assistant left and I became her assistant. So I traveled with her. I became like an editor of her work, which I loved because I was deeply into her words, which just seemed to have this power. Um, I didn't, yeah, it was a way of discovering how words are so dynamic. And if I edited too much, they would become very flat. I would lose her voice. And so it was just this delicate job of kind of straightening out her German English at the same time as um, lifting up her words. So yeah, lots happened and um, the surrender piece was huge. Um, just putting myself second, serving. I mean, you gotta run into yourself when you're trying to do that. And I definitely did. Did that time um, influence because you've you've written several books yourself? Yes. yes. Was that since that time? Um, the last time that you point out the opposition, Saturn opposition, responsibility. That's when I started writing the first book. So it was actually toward the end of Swami Radha's life in 1994-95. She died in November 1995, and um, and I was working on the first book, which was my relationship with her, kind of in terms of the metaphor of Radha and Krishna. Such a beautiful book. Yeah. It was so helpful to me because it, it showed me that she was working on two dimensions. <laughs> I was living with her on a day-to-day, -day, but she was always having this higher dimension of connection with the divine because she is so focused on that um, connection. As a human being, to be with someone who's so focused on that connection. And the book just allowed me to kind of zero in on that. And um, it helped to lift me up. And it helped to prepare me, I think, for her death. Because I knew that she wasn't... I don't know, I was very attached to her. I realized I was, as a human being, as a person who I loved. But then to see that she was really representing this higher love and that she would never really leave and that I, too, could partake of that. And she was saying, other people have to do this. It's not about me. You have to develop your own spiritual life. And she's done an amazing job because so often someone who starts a spiritual community when they pass, well, inevitably a lot of people drop away, um, but the, the ashram is still there, has grown with the, with the next leadership and, and now yours and has this presence that is, is staying, that is isn't just about one person, is really about a community running a community. And I mean, 
you've all done so fabulously. Well, one thing that um, I mean, I lived there like like you. I f I found it in in my twenties when I was living over there, and one thing that really struck me and I still reflect on it is that it was so female oriented and the leadership is always someone who is not a man <laughs> um, and the difference of energy with that I mean there's a focus on the divine feminine um, as well as being open to all traditions um, that was yeah that was one thing that was really attractive and I yes. think it's to a lot of people because there's almost like a gentleness but a fierceness because all those feminine qualities are just different yeah yeah it definitely attracted me as well um, and, and and I really when I look back at that time with the challenges that I was having it was like turning to divine mother and the divine mother prayer in particular that may everything I do be taken as I worship because you can't like be, you can't be perfect. Uh, you can't be like a perfect aspirant, no matter how hard you try. Cause the thing is, it's about getting polished. It's getting the rough edges off. It's, it's like creating the path. It's, I felt it was like she was taming a wild horse or something like there's all this energy. There's this potential, but you have to get it down to something that's, um, that's useful. And so the Divine Mother Prayer, turning to that, um, that power of life and, and understanding that life is a gift um, and, and, and then making that an offering, like making my work an offering, even if it was rough, <laughs> it really helped me. Yeah. And um, yeah, and Swami Radha, she, she was that combination of fierce, definitely challenging, and so gentle, so kind. And then Swami Radhananda, who was her successor. So after Swami Radha died, Swami Radhananda was the um, leader of the ashram for 21 years. And she had her own um, deep love of Swami Radha and her own fierceness and her own gentleness. So, so that continued. And it was more collegial than sort of hierarchical. Um, so it was the beginning of um, a different phase of the ashram that was definitely more community oriented, but the feminine very strongly present. And um, Swami Radha said, when she went to ashrams in India, she went to one that was run by a woman and she could tell the difference because of the care that was given. It was just very attentive to detail, attentive to each person. And, and I feel that's the way this ashram is. It's, um, it's not like a giant institution. It's small enough that we know the people who come and we care for each person individually. It's very, um, very mother-like, I guess. And in our tradition, too, we have a series of initiations. And, and we really don't initiate people until we know them. It's not, it's not mass initiations. Yeah. I can definitely confirm that um, Yashaja Ashram is 
very different to when I traveled in India like not just the culture like it's so much more quiet because India is not quiet in in the general kind of sense but yeah I also went to an ashram uh, run by a woman I went to the Amma the hugging saint um, and and it was different but I did experience that every ashram that I've been to is so completely utterly different I also yeah. um, spent a couple months in one in Australia run by a woman and that felt to me the most like Yashodra though quite different ashrams are all so different it, it blew me away um, Yashodra ashram is very quiet and reflective in this beautiful uh, orchard really because it was an orchard when it was when the land was um, acquired and beautiful oh the fruit the fruit was amazing Mm. it's amazing too but um i'm not there to eat it damn (laughs) and we just uh, have snow right now yeah but yeah that was the incredible thing about and because swami radhananda introduced the young adult program where um so many of us had our lives changed by coming to spend time there um and (laughs) coming from new zealand where we can grow, um, we call it silver beet, you guys call it chard. We can grow that all year quite easily, <laughs> but you guys put the garden to sleep. And so it was such a cultural experience for me being able to, in many ways, uh, being able to be somewhere where it was like really hot, hotter than it's, I've ever experienced where I grew up and then really, uh, really cold, though not quite as cold as other places I lived in Canada. but. Uh, yeah, it's such an uh, amazing opportunity for young people to come and find themselves. So we, we all seem to do that when we, we went to the ashram in our 20s. Yeah, and it's very dear to see the young ones still coming. And um, so there's something very alive about it. It definitely didn't die with Swami Radha. Like there's something that she, that's the essence of that desire to grow and um, to be given tools that help you clear the mind and um, and to observe and look back, look at your life, that um, that just seems so important. So I think that combination of um, the psychological work, the work on yourself, with the spiritual practices, that's what I that's what really is magical, most magical for me too. Mm. And the community, that sense of community. And being together, hearing other people, learning from their lives. And, um, I learned a lot about music because I was part of the Elastic mm-hmm. Band, which, <laughs> of course, um, and the ever-changing band, which has probably been quite, is probably quite cohesive now in the time of um, COVID, must be similar people all playing together well, they, come, they still kind they of still go it's still the elastic end yeah yeah i was talking about elastic. in my last podcast episode which is all about kirtan and, and bhajan yeah um, yeah the music that was um that yeah that was a really big learning in my life um mm-hmm. yeah we still have a, a record of your voice in our right. in our mp3 lift yeah, I think I have a copy of the CD back when CDs were a thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's even still available on iTunes. <laughs> yes, we sell it in the bookstore too. Yeah, that music is a big part of it. And um, 
I think being part of the Saraswati order, which is music, um, education, um, beauty, art. Yeah, it encourages that group. We have a young woman here who's leading a poetry class on a weekly basis. And she's got some of the residents in it. She's only 22, but she herself has just published a poetry book and, and she's teaching people the art of poetry, expressing themselves. Always so much, so many exciting things going on at the ashram, depending who's there. <laughs> depending who's there, yeah. 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 And, and so we talked about the book that you wrote, When Swami Radha, um, around that time that you were doing a lot of care for her and as her assistant. Um, but you have you have other books and, and writings because uh, I was looking, I love the fact that Ascent Magazine, which was published for probably a decade or so, uh, uh, which was an amazing uh, yoga reference and with incredible articles. And I love that it's online with um, its archives because I do look at it from time to time and I was looking at it the other day um, and, and looked at one of your articles and, uh, and used it. Um, can you tell us a bit about your writing and maybe your process with that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the other book that I wrote is, um, the first one's called Glimpses of a Mystical Affair, which was this one about Swami Radha as Radha, waiting for Krishna, and me as the gopi, the cowherd girl, <laughs> who was watching all of this happen. And um, the second one is called Inner Life of Asanas, and um, it continues to work with the technique that Swami Radha had for, um, for working with asana or hatha yoga, um, which she called the hidden language of hatha yoga. And it's a method of um, using the poses with reflection and writing to kind of bring together the mind and the body through the symbolism of the poses. So I use my personal experience to, um, to work with a number of poses and, and just what was happening in my life at the time and how working with the pose would, um, was a way to understand what was happening in my life and would, would feed back information that was for a deeper part of me. I think that's what all of the practices do. They tap in to more than the, um, the, the superficial conscious level to a more deep unconscious level so it's similar to dream work in that um, the asanas themselves become symbols and um, and the symbolism is personally meaningful again not everyone will have the same response so in 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 that book it was um it was just like working on an asana talking about my life and then offering people questions that they could reflect on for themselves to reflect on their lives. So with the quality of writing is so easy to read and is that what you studied when you did your degrees? I actually studied psychology and counseling but my my under thing was literature because I feel like literature is human psychology like expresses it much more clearly than textbooks on psychology for example or theories about stuff 
it's like the actual thing you get to. Yeah, so my, my love is English for sure. English. And the psychology would see you up perfectly for what you're doing now. <laughs> yeah, it was really good for, for a training as well, for listening especially. And, um, so much of what we do is listening to people, really listening to each person tell their story. And it's just like these ways in and then offering that space to hold them as they explore. And people have like serious things to explore in their lives. And, and it feels like a course, like the yoga development course or the 10 days of yoga. They, they just help people release a lot of the burdens that we carry without even knowing or acknowledging it. I had a pretty good life, but I, I also had these things that had hurt me, which I didn't even recognize. And I thought they were trivial, but somehow I was still carrying them and to, um, to let them go and to kind of let light come in to replace them. It's just, um, it really can be life-changing. I remember standing in the garden at the ashram and someone looking at me and saying, don't be so hard on yourself or, or something like, wow, you're so hard on yourself. And I, what? I had no idea that that program was playing throughout my whole life. And I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm still working with it. Like when you realize what's going on and yeah. Yeah. Those internal dialogues that result in external thoughts and then the actions, right? So it's getting back to that idea in the yoga sutras, which is controlling the waves of the thoughts in the mind. But to do that, you have to know how your mind works and, and be willing to explore it. Mm, and, and it's almost like that quality of meditation that you work on, <laughs> work on, you, you can try, it's really, it's a practice. It's a practice until it arises. Yeah, I, I read something just the other day that Swami Radha said, yeah, we call it spiritual practice, but it's really not spiritual. It's like you're just trying to, to sort of settle the restlessness and then something can happen. But that can take a long time or just pop up here and there by surprise. So that second that, is clear. That, um, taming the wild horses is just such a great analogy. And I remember the first time I heard it, I went, oh, yeah, yeah, I guess. But I, uh, now, however many years later, oh, my gosh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, evolution takes time. <laughs> I, I really didn't know until here I am, 70 years old, and still working. Yeah. Definitely. But yeah, that time that you're focused on, the time that you're living right now, it is super significant for sure. It does feel like that, like it's the, for all of us, or virtually all of us alive right now, this is the time <laughs> that everyone will remember that possibly gives the the greatest stress well the greatest collective stress in life mm -hmm. it's it can be frustrating and then it's interesting to kind of take that step out and look at it and go oh wow look at this collective karma 
yeah. and we're living yeah. through it and aren't i lucky that the sun's shining yeah. and i can go for a walk <laughs> yeah coming back to the simple pleasures mm -hmm. yeah it does feel like a very significant time in the world like a time of dismantling systems and having all that um, you know like negativity exposed like the racism and the, 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 the facade has been peeled away right and um yeah and and that's where i think that yoga can help people because we have to look at it and at the same time not be destroyed by it so to find our inner strength to to deal with the darkness and still invite the light in but the work that has to happen collectively i think is is very significant right now so as an ashram we're updating ourselves to this time as well doing studies taking courses on on things like um, awakening to whiteness it's one of the courses that we took recently from from the zen, the zen center in the u.s and then just seeing and, and um, connecting with the First Nations people here, um, the Tanaha and the Sinaiics people, whose land this was, and, and understanding that we have to we have to listen to the indigenous voices and to the um, and to the land itself. I have found that interesting in the 17 years between the, my last two trips to Canada, there's been so much of a, a change in an awareness of acknowledging uh, the original people of the land, which has been quite different to here in New Zealand and Aotearoa. There's been more of that for, for longer that I've grown, there's always been um, acknowledgement and Māori component of life at, at school, at in the mm. community, and, and more and more, because that is part of how things are changing. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, even in Australia as well, it's, it seems to be similar to Canada. Yeah, I remember when Radhananda and I travelled to Australia and New Zealand, that was, those were kind of the first acknowledgements I had heard. But almost like in Australia, it seemed like so many of the communities had been destroyed and there was a, an acknowledgement that people were still there. <laughs> and I think Canada has the chance to, um, to do the truth and reconciliation process that was set in motion. Yeah, and that's the word that's been chosen to describe that in Canada that was interesting hearing that word reconciliation I'm like, all oh, right that's, that, that's based on South Africa yeah ah yeah. uh, that's a lots of work for all of us individual work collective work global work and I find it's just fascinating because of the study that I've done in astrology not just on midlife but I know that Pluto dwarf planet or planet <laughs> that's the question um but as a dwarf planet the further out like the further the more generational kind of strong collective impact the mm. far out dwarf planets have or any of the the outer planets really um especially neptune and pluto and neptune from a spiritual sense but um but pluto 
is like a cannonball like it's about death and rebirth and transmutation and and renewal and we're in the last few degrees of capricorn which is tradition and structure and kind of like government and you can see it starting to Mm -hmm. shake yeah you'll see it starting to shake and it doesn't always feel pleasant for those of us living through it Mm -hmm. um and it'll move into aquarius in in a couple of years time well two and a half and Mm -hmm. that's more about community more about network more about the internet and futuristic and ai and probably digital currency is looking like where it's going. So it's interesting in a way to kind of go, well, do I agree or disagree with some of these things? Is centralized government going to become more decentralized and local? But having an awareness and looking at history with astrology, in a way it's like, well, I can't actually fight the influence, but we can collectively make sure that it's safe, like that artificial intelligence is used for the good of people rather than drones killing people and we've got neptune and pisces which is in its strength which is all about kind of having that opportunity to kind of become one with Mm. with the universe pops to mind yeah making making use of that while it's there because when it gets into aries it's it's next um yeah, anyway, my astrology teacher <laughs> talks about that. We've got to make, we've really got to make the most of Neptune being in um, Pisces. And in the coming months, we'll have Jupiter there too. And they're both really at home there. So <laughs> let's ride that beautiful wave while all, all of our structures seem to be falling down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's some great voices out there and some great work being done like on so many different levels, scientifically, spiritually. You know, so there is that, um, and the willingness to face the darkness is part of it. I think in the U.S. that, and I shouldn't get into politics, but yeah, just that we rode that a dark wave, and um, and so much was exposed. Like the facade of the the freedom nation was exposed. Like the 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 whole slavery thing that was hidden, and then the killing of all these black men by by the police and so on. It's just um it's it's just so present that you that it needs it can't be suppressed. And so you can't really build freedom on a lie. So that the, the truth and reconciliation part, the truth has to come out. And like you said, not always pleasant. But then at least you're living in harmony with the truth and we know that we need to do something different. Ah, being human. <laughs> being human. Yeah. <laughs> so at the ashram, um, you've got a three-month course, that the yearly yoga development course coming up. Yes, yes we do. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of people are coming. We usually have... Like last year, we had 18. So we didn't know if it would work or not during COVID, but we thought, of course it can. So last year, we did a two-week quarantine for everyone because we didn't have vaccines. And um, we, we offered them online and walks and fires outside. So we meet like that different ways. And then they started after the two-week quarantine. 
So this year, we have 22 to 26 people arriving for the yoga development course in mid-January. And we'll see how what's happening with COVID. Currently, the idea is that people will just enter in, mask for five days, and then still all be together. But we'll see if that works or not. It's just a time when we just have to adjust. Yeah. Adapt and adjust to the moment. Um, but yeah, that course is the one I talked about that changed my life. And, and because it's winter, it's quiet, very, very quiet here. Uh, it's such a great time for going inward. Did you do that course, Sarah? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Years ago, I guess. Yeah, 2005. Okay. Mm. Yeah, it was a yeah. very special time. Yeah, and the light increases here. So we move from darkness to light, literally, as well as having that freedom from some of those burdens that people are carrying. It's the same thing as the cultural one. It's like you face your own darkness, your own sadness, your own fears, and then you come out freer and lighter and ready to live the next days. So I'm really happy that people are able to come. We're so happy to see them again. Yeah. Yeah, being able to to, to travel. You, you guys have a, a, a bigger country to be able to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, our borders are still somewhat closed at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, times will change as they do. Yeah. Yeah. So what's the best way for people to contact? Would that be um, via the website? Yeah, the website is good because it also has all of our contact information. So it's yashodara.org. I'll make sure that's in the show notes. <laughs> Um, just actually, the Yashodra was just a bit on on the name. Yashodra was yeah. the name of the wife of the Buddha. Yeah. Yes. Uh, there's an interesting story about the name of this ashram. Um, Swami Radha discovered the land when she decided she needed to move the ashram from the city to a very quiet spot so people could focus and not be running around. And in her search, this is the land that came up. And when she arrived here she just had a feeling that it, it was it she actually said it was like coming back to her old hunting ground as if she had had a previous life here and then when she walked on the beach all the little pebbles on the beach which are very beautiful but she said they looked to her like diamonds and rubies and emeralds they were just glowing and she felt like she was kind of walking on air and so they were able to, in the early 1960s, um, put a down payment on this land and, and leave here. There's only a tiny, one tiny house. And um, she discovered when they were purchasing it that it already had the name Yashodara Estates. And she knew that Yashodara was the wife of the Buddha. And she, well, that makes it for sure that this is the right place. And it will be a place for women. And it will be a place for a, a divine feminine lineage. So, um, yeah, Yashoda is Krishna's mother. Yashodara is the Buddha's wife. So, and I think that legacy, that legacy holds. Like it was a confirmation of, of a place for the divine feminine. And she really 
brought that in with images of goddesses and uh, prayers to divine mother. But that includes people of all genders, mm. because divine mother means everything that is manifest, and um, and to appreciate and and love and respect and offer that. And it comes back to respect for the land, respect for the people, respect for our intelligence, respect for our hearts. And so the community of all genders, because there's definitely been men there, it's not just a place for yeah. women or people identifying as women. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, draw together for the end of the year. And of course, this will come out on the, after the new moon and you'll be getting closer to the start of the yoga development course, yes. which is quite a process for everyone at the ashram because it's all about supporting the people on that and I remember being well mm. supported yeah mm. so that contact www.yashodra.org y-a-s-o-d-h-a-r-a correct website with many many facets to it and just thank you so much for your time, Lalita Nanda. You're welcome. You're welcome. I, just, I have one thing to add, that if anyone would like to be on our prayer list in this time, um, every night we chant in the Temple of Light for people to send out vibrations. So if anyone's in need, they can also write to us and um, your name will be placed on the prayer list for three months. Yeah, just to offer that spiritual support at this time. Yeah, that is absolutely beautiful. I know I've <laughs> put people on, put myself on. It's and the yeah. chanting in the temple is really, really blissful. Mm. It's so nice to see you again, Sarah. <laughs> Thank you. Namaste. Namaste. Speaking with Swami Lalitananda reminded me of the beauty and depth of the ashram. A time when I wrote a lot of music, when Neptune was transiting my stellium, which means Neptune was passing over the part of my chart, my birth chart, where three or more planets are close together. The last time I visited the ashram, I had started studying astrology more formally with Harsha Rigney, who features on episode 9, telling you all about all of these transits in depth. Not that I'd covered it in class just yet, but a friend pointed me to an astrocartography site, where you can get an indication of different planetary influences via lines on a map of the world. I found that for me... Jupiter, the planet of optimism, expansion and benevolence, ran straight down the mountain range where the ashram is located in Kootenay Bay, British Columbia. No wonder I find it extra special. You can find the astrocartography feature on astro.com if you want to take a look for yourself. Today's music, despite my recent assurances 
of recording new tracks is actually another back catalogue original, simply because it's our Christmas and summer holidays. Life gets a bit nuts, not to mention the current astrological influences going on. The one I really wanted to include, I already shared as part of episode 4, Song of Freesias, based on my time at the ashram doing the yoga development course. Instead, it's another that I wrote there, which happens to feature on both my albums. The first half is an original melody and the second is from elsewhere and if you listen to last month's episode it will sound familiar and I talked a little bit more about that there. Here is the Gayatri Mantra from my 2015 album Awake by Prem Ratna.
Unraveling Midlife is brought to you from Aotearoa, New Zealand by www.sarahmalospence.com Theme music is by Sarah Marlow Spence and Saraspati Marie Willis and art by Samantha Hepburn. <laughs>